You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3 WBPU-FM in St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Reparations in Action is the weekly program of white people in solidarity with African liberation. My name is Jamie Simpson, your host. We want to begin, as always, by saluting the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party and the African Socialist International, the leader of the International African Revolution, Chairman Omalia Shatela, without whose analysis uh, and understanding of the world, African internationalism, we would not be able to bring you this show. And we also want to salute Deputy Chair Onazine Yeshitela, the on-the-ground leader of the economic work of the African People's Socialist Party. We want to salute the African People's Solidarity Committee, that is the cadre organization of white people in solidarity with reparations and the African Revolution. This station, Black Power 96.3, for giving us this hour every Tuesday at noon, and the African People's Education and Defense Fund, created to address the grave disparities in human rights, economic development, health, education, and health care faced by the African community. So we are the Uhuru Solidarity Movement and African People's Solidarity Committee, and we are bringing you this show today so that we can sum up the urgent, urgent crisis of imperialism, the colonial virus known as uh, the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, through the lens of African internationalism. And I am very honored to be joined today by my co-host, the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville. Uhuru and welcome, Jesse. Uhuru, Jamie, very glad to be here. I want to salute you and all of our listeners on Black Power 96.3 FM, as well as on our podcast on uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. And I also want to join you in saluting our leadership, the leadership of the Uhuru Movement and the African People's Socialist Party, Chairman Omali Shatela. And I also want to give a shout out to our our usual co-host, Penny Hess, who chairs yes. the African People's Solidarity Committee and uh, has been working under the leadership of the chairman and the African People's Socialist Party to build principled white solidarity with African liberation for over 40 years. And Penny is not available today just due to the sheer magnitude of work that is happening right now to forward the reparations front of the African revolution. But uh, we know that she is... Um, going to be join, rejoining us next week and every week after that. So I want to salute uh, Penny Hest and just uh, appreciate everybody for listening and tuning in. This is an amazing time to, um, to be in this movement and to be under the leadership of the African liberation movement that has launched a people's war against COVID-19, which Chairman Omalia Shatela has correctly defined as a colonial virus. So we're going to be talking about that today. Um, and going into some of the recent articles that have been in the, in the news relating to COVID-19 and the struggles of the oppressed peoples of the world. Excellent. You know, uh, Jesse, I, I really appreciate you shouting out Chairwoman Penny, and uh, I, I want to join you in that and assure our listeners that uh, you will hear more from Chairwoman Penny Hess in the coming weeks. And um, I really appreciate the work that she has done, that you yourself have done, and that the African People's Socialist Party has achieved through this uh, People's Commission, the, pe the People's War Against the Colonial Virus. And it's, it's been quite staggering to see the effect that this colonial virus, COVID-19, has had just in terms of mortality in the African community. 
throughout this country in the black community, how, how very much it has uh, targeted the African working class. Um, did you have some, some, some details from the media you wanted to share with us, Jesse? Absolutely, let's talk about that. So before these statistics even came out, Chairman Omali Yashitela had put forward this designation of COVID-19 as being a colonial virus. And before there was any statistical information to prove what the African People's Socialist Party and the Black community as a whole already knew through their own lived experience, the Uhuru movement took steps to form a People's War Commission that has put numerous different organizational fronts on the ground to address the grave disparities that have been inflicted upon the Black community um, under this current uh, manifestation of colonialism in the form of this virus. The People's War Strategy, which has many different aspects, some of which are led by Dr. Aisha Fields, who is the director of the All African People's Development and Empowerment Project, has been leading a, uh, a commission that has actually been implementing a telehealth program for African people to be able to access medical advice remotely uh, from licensed professionals. Um, they've been forming community health brigades, They've been putting out a lot of information online and, um, and through outreach where they've gone out with masks and protective gear, putting up posters around the community, informing people about the dangers of, of COVID-19, uh, identifying symptoms, how to prevent it, a home care guide to prevention, uh, even gardening tips, recipes, homeschooling materials. This is the kind of work that the Uhuru movement has been doing um, in the context of a larger anti-colonial strategy to forward the struggle of African people to actually take political and economic power over their lives and resources. Because, um, because that is the underlying problem that has resulted in a disproportionately high number of African people dying from COVID-19. And we wanna talk about that. We wanna take a look at some of the more recent statistics. We talked about this last week. There was an article in the Atlantic Magazine that reported that at least 29 states have now released the racial demographics for confirmed coronavirus cases, death rates, or both, according to the COVID-19 racial data tracker. The uh, tracker, a collaboration between the Atlantic's COVID-19 tracking project and the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center, has been developed to track, analyze, and regularly update racial data on the pandemic within the United States. The initial data provides a still incomplete picture of the national outbreaks disparities. And 38% of the 194,000 cases that these 29 states had reported as of April 12th, no racial data was, were attached. And some states mix racial and ethnic categories in reporting their numbers. But the federal government's failure to assemble this data has left it to organizations like Atlantic and others to try to put together some understanding, uh, however incomplete, um, of how this is manifesting itself within the colonized black community. And as wow. they reported, the picture keeps looking worse by the day. In New York City's ground zero, uh, so-called Latinos or indigenous people make up 34% of the known deaths from the coronavirus higher than their 29.1% share of the city's population. Two small indigenous pueblos in New Mexico had higher infection rates than any US county as of Friday. But at this point in the pandemic, the disparities between 
the size of the black population and the percentage of African people infected with, hospitalized with, or dead from COVID-19 are the most severe. A Washington Post analysis found that majority black counties had infection rates three times the rate of majority white counties. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention analysis of nearly 15,000 hospitalizations across 14 states found that African people made up a third of the hospitalizations, despite accounting for 18% of the population in the areas studied. An associated press analysis of available death data found that Africans constituted 42% of the victims, double their share of the populations of the states the analysis included, meaning they were twice as likely to die. In Louisiana, more than 70% of the state who have died so far from COVID-19 were African, more than twice their 32% share of the state population, well above the 60% share of the New Orleans, um, where the outbreak is worse. And in New York, African people are 9% of the state population and 17% of the deaths. In Chicago, Africans have been over 80% of the deaths. In Michigan, Africans have been over 40%, despite only being 14% of the population. And in St. Louis, as of today, I think all but three of the deaths by COVID-19 have been African people. So uh, we wanted to talk about this, Jamie, uh, because this is something that really requires the analysis of Chairman Amali Shatella and African internationalism to really make sense of. Because if you, because, you know, I'm sure you saw it, Jamie, even Donald Trump ended up acknowledging that there is um, a high rate of, of African deaths happening from this virus. What he said was, it's terrible that it's happening. We don't know why it's happening, but we're looking right. into it, right? That's what yeah. he said. Then you had people, then you had, uh, you have, the, let's talk about the explanations that are out there. So you have Trump, who's just throwing his hands up and going, I don't know why it's happening. Then you have- Like, um, like it's a curiosity or something. Exactly. Like, huh, look at that. Then you have just really reactionary white nationalist uh, um, journalism that's coming out saying that it's because of an, a failure by the African community to participate in social distancing, which is a uh, blatant assault on the black community and attempt to shift blame for this tragic and devastating pandemic uh, onto the most powerless and impoverished and oppressed sector of the human population. So you have that, and then you have variations of that, which don't really give any real explanation for the onus of these disparities. You have um, people who will show, you know, journalists and, and articles and different so-called experts who will point to high rates of hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, and they'll say, well, that's why, because COVID-19 preys on pre-existing conditions, and there's a higher rate of pre-existing conditions in the black community. Therefore, that's why the death rates are higher, as if that is just a normal and natural outcome right. of genetics or something, um, mm -hmm. and gives no explanation. What is behind that? What is behind right. those conditions? What is behind that, Jamie, from the perspective well, of the Uhura movement? I, I mean, from, from the perspective of, of, of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, the African People's Socialist Party, uh, African internationalism, my understanding is that the underlying condition we're looking at is colonialism, there is the lack of self-determination that African people and indigenous people have over their own land, lives, and resources. That's the fundamental vulnerability that would leave you exposed to a genocidal colonial virus. And the, the thing that really gets me 
about these explanations or these calls for an explanation, whether they're coming from the liberal media or our reactionary openly white nationalist president um, is just that it's, it's in it, that they are explanations, right? They seek to offer a, a, a digestible explanation primarily for the white population to remind people that in this system, this is normal. In this system of parasitic capitalism, the suffering and death of African people is just normal. So remember that and accept it, whether they see it in, in this horrific way where they openly put the blame on the victim, on the African community, or whether they see it as, well, look, these are some you know, persistent uh, problems and disparities that are just part of our society. And we're going to have to kind of roll along with it because these are very important workers who we value very much. And they're paying the price. And it's very sad. It's so very sad. That is, I find, deeply offensive, almost more offensive than the open reactionary uh, blaming of the victim that we expect. It's so clear to see is this, you know, as, as Chairman Amali should tell us, is the white people who love African people. And that's all they have to say about it, is how sad it is, how much they appreciate the African workers for being out there on the buses, in, in the service industries, in the medical industries, in all the different roles uh, that African people have uh, played throughout the years for us as white people to make us dependent. And it, it encourages us to get comfortable with that relationship. And uh, I find that to be the problem. The, the problem is colonialism and colonialism has been the status quo. And we need to wake up to that, in my opinion, as, as white people and interject a demand. Because in, in my opinion, that's, that, that is what is so dangerous about asking, well, why, well, why, well, why, and giving all these explanations is that people get satisfied with the explanation and don't go to the next step of recognizing this system is in jeopardy, this system is vulnerable itself, and that's the time when we need to raise a demand, like the revolutionary demand for reparations to African people. And the, the, I agree, and the demand for reparations is not new. It's something that has been raised by the Uhuru movement and by the African liberation movement uh, for decades now. And I think that um, it is more relevant than it's ever been. I mean, it, it has always been relevant. It has always been the essential question. And I guess I could say that it is still the defining question of our times. And if anything has laid bare before the eyes of the world, the true nature of this social system, then I think this global pandemic uh, has done the trick has done the job on that. I mean, it has really exposed that this system cares nothing about human life. It is all mm -hmm. about profit and greed for the capitalist ruling class. And it is, you know, the, the Wall Street banks are getting trillions of dollars, the same small number of banks who got $29 trillion from the Obama era bailouts. That's twice the gross domestic product, one and a half times the gross domestic product of the entire U.S. economy uh, that was given wow. to the banks during the Obama era, they are now standing to gain trillions more from the Trump bailouts, from the so-called CARES Act, uh, coronavirus um, stimulus bill that's being passed. Meanwhile, a lot of people in this country are sitting around wondering where their $1,200 checks are, but uh, all you know, Citigroup and Bank of America and all those banks are not wondering where their trillions are because they're getting them fast-tracked. And and on the other side, like literally minutes away from where these Wall Street bankers are sitting around uh, salivating over their stock portfolios, you have refrigerated trucks lining up outside hospitals in Queens to handle the influx of dead bodies that are being wheeled out uh, one after another um, from coronavirus deaths. So this is, 
capitalism that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. This is raw, ugly, naked essence of parasitic capitalism built on the enslavement of African people, built on the genocide against the indigenous people who are still facing genocide, who have faced multiple forms of uh, biological and warfare throughout their history. And coronavirus is just the latest um, assault um, where biological warfare has been weaponized against the indigenous people as a form of extermination of the indigenous people. Um, that this system, that's what it's built on. That's You're just seeing the truth about capitalism right now. And it's falling apart. I mean, they're not, they're not going to be able to go back to normal, and we don't no. want them to. And no. you know, as white people who want to stand on the side of Africans, on the side of indigenous people, on the side of the people of China, on the side of mm -hmm. all all peoples around the world that just want to live and just want to have a different kind of world where uh, where they have self determination and they have they have uh, possession of their own resources and and the destinies of their children. Um, this is the time to step up. This is the time to join the struggle for reparations. And, and it's really urgent. I, th I don't know, I'm just yeah. really experiencing the urgency of this period, Jamie. Like this, this is the time. This is the time to step up right now because it's, it's never going back to the way it used to be. So this is a crossroads. Where do yes. we go from here? And as Chairman Amalia Ishtel has said, the road to socialism is painted black. It, it is indeed, Jesse. I really appreciate that and, and um, concur. And, you know, the, that question of the urgency is something that doesn't come naturally to us in the white community, to uh, a coddled parasitic population. Our mm -hmm. tendency is to take this opportunity to reflect, to get to know our families, to watch, you know, Netflix, as Chairwoman Penny said last week. It's, it's very true. It's, mm -hmm. it's even in the, in the commercials talking about your, your, your daily routine now involves a, a, a virtual um, happy hour, right? And um, all, all these different things while the, the, the news is so stark and so obvious. And th this more than ever is a time for us to wake up to our political responsibilities, yeah. to our historical responsibilities, and uh, to, to become the, the leaders that this uh, movement, that African internationalism allows us to be. Um, to, to assume that role is, uh, is, is a difficult thing, and, but we, we've got to do it. We've got to do it now uh, because the, the lives of so many people are at stake. The future of this planet and humanity is at stake. And as was pointed out in that article that you read, we don't even know the full extent of no, this situation. The numbers that are being reported, they, they are telling us, they are admitting from a multitude of assertions uh, from this state, this government, this media apparatus, that um, they, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is just a, a sample of the population. And they don't really even know how many people are sick with this virus right now and have died of it because they don't have sufficient testing. They don't have anything like antibody tests yet that they're talking about in the media. The unpreparedness of this system, it, it, it's no accident, right? Yeah. It's, it's part of colonial terror that there's no health backup, that there's no, look, look at the unemployment crisis that's going right now on right now in Florida alone. They have an antiquated computer system that was built in, in the Nixon era. It was somewhat contemporary. And uh, th there's absolutely no way for them to sync it up effectively with the, the modern computer system so that they can get people their unemployment checks in, right. in, this, in this time of mass unemployment. And so the, the idea of waiting around for some good-natured leader within imperialism to fix all this is a suicidal notion right now. 
for us as, as human beings. So I, I, I fully unite that we've got to accept this urgency, accept the task enthusiastically of yeah. organizing other white people to be in solidarity with uh, the, the People's Commission, the People's War Against Coronavirus, with reparations as our responsibility, as a revolutionary demand. Agreed. Well, I think we're going to take a quick music break, uh, Comrade Jamie. And Sounds good. We will be right back to continue our discussion. And uh, the, I, the notion of a good-natured leader within imperialism coming to save the day is one that we're going to be taking a close look at. So we will be right back. When will we be paid for the work we've done? When will we be paid for the work we've done? We have worked this country, I'm sure, I'm sure. Our women cooked all your food and washed all your clothes. We picked all your cotton and laid the railroad steel. Worked our hands to the bone at your lumber mill. I say, when will we be paid for the work we've done? When will we be paid for the work we've done? We fought in your wars in every land to keep this country free, y'all, for women, children, and men. But any time we ask for pay alone, that's when everything seems to turn out wrong. We've been beat up, beat up, called names, shot down and stoned. And every time we do right, someone say we're wrong. When will we be paid for the work we've done? When will we be paid for the work we've done? We have given our sweat and all our tears. We stumbled through this life for more than 300 years. We've been separated from the language we knew. Stripped of our culture, people you know it's true. Tell me now, when will we be paid for the work we've done? When will we be paid for the work we've done? When will we ever be proud of my country tears of thee? Such a classic song. Classic indeed. Staple singers, when will we be paid? That is the question. So uh, when we last, when we uh, left for the music break, we were talking about the notion of a good-natured white person within imperialism solving imperialism's crisis for us. Yep. And so let's yeah. talk about that. So people probably saw the news, I think it was the day before yesterday, um, Bernie Sanders has gone full Joseph Biden. Uh, Bernie Sanders dropped out of the presidential race and endorsed the former vice president, um, Joseph Biden, 
for uh, president. Uh, he's running against Donald Trump. And this was a, to some in the Bernie Sanders camp, uh, a disappointment. Um, some saw it as a betrayal of uh, Bernie's principles. Um, but, and Bernie Sanders, of course, it has, is a self-proclaimed democratic socialist who has run on a platform of things like um, healthcare for all and $15 an hour minimum wage um, and other um, sort of uh, social democratic reforms. So let's talk about that, uh, Jamie. Let's talk a little yes. bit about the significance of this. Um, first of all, I think just to kind of uh, zoom back a little bit and look at the US electoral system uh, as Chairman Omalia Shatella from the African People's Socialist Party has always put forward in his analysis of the US electoral system that um, inside the United States and under the system of parasitic capitalism, the electoral process is, as he defines it, a quote, nonviolent contest between contending sectors of the state, uh, I'm sorry, between contending sectors of the white ruling class for control of the state. The state being the organizations of violence and coercion that are used to maintain power and control in the hands of the oppressor uh, class, the bourgeoisie, so um, and to maintain control of the resources. So that is what we're looking at when we look at an, a U.S. election. Um, nonetheless, there were many people, many millions of people, including many young white people, who were inspired by the rise of the Bernie Sanders phenomenon and the ascendancy to uh, front runner status of someone who is widely perceived as being very progressive and, and actually for socialism. Um, we take some issue with that because, um, for a number of reasons, because we are, you know, this, many of us on this program, we're members of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. We work under the leadership of a socialist party of African people called the African People's Socialist Party. And the African People's Socialist Party and its chief theoretician, uh, Chairman Amalia Shetela, have done a lot of work over the last 47 years to give a very clear definition and understanding of what socialism is. And socialism, as Chairman Amalia Shetela defines it, is that stage in history when the working class seizes control of the state and the means of production and becomes the ruling class. And as Chairman Amali Shetela has shown, under colonial capitalism, the essence of class struggle is found in the anti-colonial struggle. That uh, colonialism, that parasitic capitalism was born as white power. That the idea, the existence of the white nation and all of the classes that are included within white people, within white society, were born off of the same process that gave birth to capitalism itself. So even the white working class has a different relationship to parasitic capitalism as far as benefiting from it, the resources, um, social wealth, even democratic rights than the African population does because African workers and African people as a whole are colonized and colonialism is the essence of class identification within 
uh, the capitalist society. Therefore, the genuine working class, the real revolutionary working class is the African working class and colonized workers of the world. And this, the, the entire capitalist social system rests on a foundation of the exploitation of African labor. So in order to overturn capitalism, as the chairman says, you have to do that in order for there to be socialism. You can't have capitalism and socialism coexist because capitalism was born as a world system and you can't have pockets of socialism surrounded by, uh, in, a, you know, in a sea of predatory parasitic capitalism. That is impossible. As socialism has to come into being through the defeat of capitalism and under the leadership of the African working class. And that is socialism. As the chairman has said, the, the quote that we always use is the road to socialism is painted black. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, re I really appreciate that, Jesse. I really appreciate that analysis from uh, Chairman Amalia Shatella uh, and how much it's sharpened and deepened over the years. And I, I just, just want to be sure that um, we're being clear with each other and, 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 and to our listeners that when, when you talk about the ruling uh, class being overturned, when you talk about capitalism being overturned, my understanding is that through African internationalism, we have to understand capitalism and colonialism is always coming together. That if we're not attacking, if we're not talking about overturning that capitalism, which comes from colonialism, which is colonialism, then we're not really talking about overturning capitalism, right? So like that, this whole notion that we're going to overturn capitalism within U.S. borders only, for instance, and and create some kind of um, socialist state, a la Scandinavia, or something like that, right? Um, is 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 not the kind of socialism that the African People's Socialist Party is talking about because it overlooks the primary contradiction, the basis for parasitic capitalism, the, the pedestal, as we call it, the, um, the original sin, which is the, the assault on African peoples, uh, the, the, on African people, on indigenous peoples, on uh, Arab peoples, on Asian peoples, this, uh, this lashing out of white people against the, the rest of the world mm -hmm. so that it, it becomes Im impossible to talk about the same population of people that carried out colonialism against the indigenous people of the United States, that carried out massive lynching programs or mm -hmm. pogroms, as we would call them if they happened in Europe against, against Jewish people. Mm -hmm. The, the, the this same population that burned down Rosewood, that, that, that burned down um, you know, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma in, in, in the 20s, the, this was the white workers. This right. was the same sentiment that we're talking about. This was populism. Right, a lot the same voices that were calling for a redistribution of wealth amongst the white people uh, were, were the same people uh, calling for the most extreme white nationalist violence against African people and, and eradication of any semblance of democratic rights mm -hmm. for African people. So th this has been the long tradition. And I don't think we can separate that from in particular, Bernie Sanders refusal to unite with reparations. And, yeah. and th there are many other factors that go into Sanders' failure to ignite any kind of enthusiasm within a broad sector of the African community. But that is a big one. We cannot yeah. overlook his absolute refusal, even in the face of the Democratic Party, increasingly moving towards reparations as a mass demand, as a mass call that could mean whatever they needed to mean, opportunistically even. Right. He wouldn't even go there. And I... I really think, as has been pointed out um, by several leaders of, of the party and, and, and the movement, um, that he has this incredibly important white base 
that, that he shared, Sanders did and does, that there, there's an overlap between that base and the Trump base even. Sure. That there are a lot of folks, uh, from my understanding, and, and please, I'd, I'd like your input on this, Jesse, that there, there were a lot of um, white people in particular who be, became disillusioned with what they thought Trump would do and decided to put their support behind Sanders. And I think that speaks to a really disturbing trend in, in uh, the history of white people in this country, this uh, trend of opportunism politically to pretend that we're talking about socialism, to pretend that we're talking about social justice, liberation, the needs of the people, when really what we're talking about is just getting a bigger piece of the pie for us and, sure. and becoming more comfortable with the status quo. Yeah, I think I saw a, a poll or something saying that 15% of, of uh, Sanders supporters would vote for Trump um, rather than vote for, uh, for Biden. Of course, you know, from, from my perspective, voting for Trump is voting for Biden, is voting for Trump, is voting. I don't, there's no, sure. really no difference between the two of them. Um, and, and really, there's not a world of difference between the two of them and even Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders was questioned about whether or not he would be open to preemptive strikes against uh, Iran and North Korea. And he unhesitatingly said yes. So um, what really distinguishes him from, from the rest? Uh, and, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the whole, situ the whole question of reparations is the key thing. Because, you know, we had this amazing uh, candidate here in St. Petersburg, Akile Anai, the uh, the, who is the director of agitation and propaganda for the African People's Socialist Party. Actually, this is a, a nice uh, artifact from, from the 2019 campaign. Beautiful. That salute, Akile. Yep. What a campaign. Yes. So, um, but yeah, I think that's one of the most um, influential and important things that's happened in the history of U.S. electoral politics um, in the past century. And this was a campaign, of course, that was launched by the African People's Socialist Party and Chairman Amalia Shatella. And um, it, was, it came off the heels of a campaign in 2017 when Akile ran for uh, city council and I was assigned to run for mayor. So this was the, this was the first time you had um, a white candidate as well, openly talking about reparations to African people in an electoral race. And at the time, um, in 2017, when, when Akila and I ran, it was really bizarre to a lot of people that we were doing that, that we were in uh, a political, you know, um, electoral race talking about reparations, reparations over and over and over again. And there were people who even supported us, but were like, you should really stop emphasizing reparations so much. You might want to curtail that a little bit because you might alienate people. And that's a little fringe, radical, crazy. Now, uh, three years later, and especially after what uh, Director Akile did in 2019, um, you see the, that it's become almost part of the liberal Democratic Party platform, uh, the left-leaning liberal, liberal Democratic Party agenda to talk about reparations, even though most of the time they are redefining reparations in order to, as the chairman says, to liquidate it of its revolutionary essence. The fact that they're talking about reparations is important and is significant and is a testament to the influence of the African People's Socialist Party. So it's kind of mind boggling. And I bet you some of his advisors, because he, Sanders tried to surround himself with uh, African uh, campaign advisors and stuff like that. 
on round two because he, he had such a bad showing the first time around with the African community. And I bet you that there were some meetings where they were like, you really want to, might want to reconsider this whole reparations thing because even Tom Steyer, a billionaire, was saying he supports reparations. Even Michael Bloomberg uh, kind of implied that he was for some kind of reparations. But Bernie Sanders, you know, over and over and over and over again, set, made it absolutely clear that he is not for reparations. He thinks it's a non-starter. He thinks that it would never get through Congress and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in one case, he even said, I don't know what it means. I don't, what does it mean, reparations? Like, you know, and you know, Bernie Sanders is Jewish. My family's Jewish. I'm pretty sure we know what reparations means. <laughs> okay, it's not that mysterious. Um, so why are we okay with, the, uh, with reparations going to Jewish people, which that's a whole other topic because, uh, you know, because the form of reparations, that was really a perversion of reparations. It was funding a Zionist colonial settler state in the name of reparations. But why are we, why are we okay with that, but opposed to reparations when it comes to the African population? So, right, because as foul as the process was, the reality is uh, European Jewish people did get checks. I mean, I, I know personally of people that were receiving checks as recently as 15 years ago. I, I don't know what the status exactly. is now. But. And, and here's the thing that, that has become, I think, the, the dividing line. The reason why we are so hard on Bernie Sanders, because, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who, who are like, wow, I would not expect that the socialist Uhuru solidarity people would be would be ragging on Bernie Sanders so hard. But, you know, actually, the reason why we would criticize him so harshly is because he calls himself a socialist. Because right. if he was just another liberal Democrat, I wouldn't, we probably wouldn't even be talking about him. But, it, you know, or he would just be another liberal Democrat. It would be like, well, what do you expect? But it's because he calls himself a socialist that, I, that it becomes necessary to say, you're not a socialist, you are a fraud. And you are mm. taking advantage of the fact that so many millions of people, even young white people in this country want socialism, hate capitalism, can see that capitalism is gonna destroy the planet Earth if capitalism itself is not destroyed. And you're, you, you're taking that sentiment and channeling it into something that is really about saving capitalism, as Chairman Amalia mm -hmm. Fatella has said. Bernie Sanders is at best a far-seeing capitalist who can see that unless some changes are made, unless the money is spread around a little bit within the capitalist society, then this thing is not going to be able to last. So he's not about ending capitalism. He's about sustaining its lifespan. And, and, you know, and also the whole question of reparations, to me, that was the minute I heard him say that, I, I, that was the end of the conversation for me. How, like, how can you call yourself a socialist and be against reparations when socialism is about redistribution of the wealth and making sure that workers are in receipt are in possession of the value of their labor that's right. socialism and reparations is the highest form of the redistribution of the wealth of parasitic capitalism hoarded by the ruling class to the oppressed peoples of the world and the repossession of the value of their labor by african people whose labor has been extracted from them and exploited for hundreds of years that's essence of genuine socialism is reparation. So you're not talking about socialism when you're talking about $15 an hour minimum wage or when you're talking about uh, 
healthcare for all and things like that. You're not talking about, so just call it something else. Don't right. call it socialism. And you know, that, that sentiment, Jesse, I think we, we were talking the other night, I, I saw an, an interview with uh, an actor I, I, who, who I love his performances, uh, Brian Cox. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking on the BBC and um, I, I came in a little late. I wasn't clear on whether he's just quarantining himself or whether he has coronavirus, but he, he was speaking about his career. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the interviewer asked him how he could put forward Hollywood while he's a self-professed lifelong socialist. Mm-hmm. And so Cox kind of tried to do, do some acrobatics to justify this and explained that for him, socialism simply means universal suffrage and welfare for all. And I, I think that this, that brings me to the point of what we really want to express, which what, what is socialism? Because for, for Bernie Sanders, it seemed to revolve around Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. So, so these ideas that social welfare programs applied more generally to the population equal socialism. And that is such a far cry from the productive forces, the actual workers of the world, the, the working class and, and poor peasantry seizing power, seizing control over the means of production and becoming the new ruling class. That is a very, very different demand and set of circumstances than um, a, a minor redressing of the windows for capitalism. And so we, we have to call on people uh, who were in support of Bernie Sanders because they saw something genuine that they yeah. wanted to unite with. They saw something honest and vital and, and, and something w- willing to lead out of this quagmire of, of, of parasitic capitalism that, that you, can't, you can't just allow that to become despair. There is a movement here, a genuine socialist movement, and there's a reason why uh, we're we're criticizing Bernie Sanders. We appreciate the fact, uh, as Chairman O'Malley Eshetela has said, say socialism, talk about it. That gives us an opportunity to define what it genuinely is and and invite the people to participate in that. Talk about reparations. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that we're seeing the Democratic Party out of all sides of its mouth, they're, they're talking about different aspects of the platform. Um, you have people like Tom Steyer who talked about reparations, right? Yeah. Elizabeth Warren talked about reparations. And then Bernie can talk about socialism, but his, his loyalty to the white nationalist base won't allow him to talk to reparations, or maybe his actual white nationalist interpretations of history. I don't know, but it gives us an opportunity to continue to deepen the crisis for them, right? I, that, that's what it seems to me, that every time the African People's Socialist Party gets into this ideological battle over defining socialism, over defining reparations, it deepens the crisis for them because right. they, they think they've got a handle on, on what this means. Like the fact that Bernie Sanders came out and said, what is reparations? I don't even understand it. I don't even know what it means. I think that's a, a brilliant expression of, of how hollow the political leadership of parasitic capitalism is right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely. So I agree that any, any people who are out there and, you know, all these young white so-called millennials that are out there that, the, that you know, there have been polls done showing that um, huge numbers, huge percentages of white people under 30 uh, are for socialism, want to see a different kind of social system, then this is the place to be. You know, this is the movement. This is Chairman O'Malley Ishatella is that seasoned leader from the 1960s onward who has never compromised and who has always stood on principle in the struggle for the liberation of Africa and African people everywhere. Penny Hess is that leader who since 1976 uh, took the step to 
join under the leadership of the African revolution and take that revolution into the white community and has never compromised and has been principled and on point ever since building the African People's Solidarity Committee under the party's leadership. So this is the place to be. This is the socialist movement. This is where we can take a stand, not just against capitalism as it manifests itself in corporate greed and capitalist monopoly and things like that, but in where we, where we can take a stand against parasitic capitalism, against the essential quality of capitalism, which is that it's a parasite on the body of mankind, of humankind, that was born off of enslaving African people, that was born off of committing genocide against the indigenous people, and that cannot survive without sucking the blood and resources of the oppressed peoples of the planet Earth. So capitalism yes. is on its way out, and we have a role. We have an assignment in the revolution. Our assignment is reparations. So, um, so we have about 15 minutes left, uh, Jamie, and um, I believe we wanted to discuss another interesting topic that was in the news. So, yes. Yeah. Did you want to sum that up, and then we can discuss? Sure, sure. Um, and m maybe you can help me with some of the... Uh the the specifics my um access to the article isn't so great but okay well i can i can read the article okay great well let's 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 talk about u.s naval decline all right so this is an article from ecns.cn and this is uh an article about the pla or people's liberation army aircraft carrier that sailed through the miyako strait a Chinese naval flotilla led by an aircraft carrier reportedly sailed through the Miyako Strait and headed towards the Pacific Ocean, prompting Chinese military experts to say on Sunday that the fleet demonstrated success in novel coronavirus epidemic control work. The Chinese flotilla, consisting of the Liaoning aircraft carrier, two type 052D guided missile destroyers, two type 054A guided missile uh, frigates, that's how you pronounce that, and one Type 901 auxiliary supply ship was spotted during transit through the Miyako Strait on Friday evening, according to a statement issued by the Japanese Defense Ministry. The Chinese warships were headed in the direction of the Pacific Ocean. In line with the Japanese report, media on the island of Taiwan reported that the Liaoning carrier group was spotted in waters east of the island. The Chinese mainland military has yet to announce the operation. There was nothing strange about the Liaoning and other warships reportedly conducting regular routine exercises on Friday, Zhu Guangyu, a senior advisor to the Chinese Arms Control and Disarmament Association, told the Global Times on Sunday. This was not the first time the Liaoning has passed through the Miyako Strait into the Pacific Ocean. Similar voyages took place in June 2019 and December 2016, according to reports. Chinese aircraft carriers were more frequently uh, cross seas, including the Miyako Strait, for deployment in the West Pacific and Indian Oceans, according to an article published by Zia Kidao, the official WeChat account operated by the overseas edition of the People's Daily in June of 2019. Such operations would become standard practice. Chinese analysts noted on Sunday that the Liaoning carrier group voyage came at a time when many foreign aircraft carriers were hit by COVID-19, foreign, they're talking mainly about the United States and Europe, rendering them unsuitable for deployment. The USS Theodore Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, Carl Vinson, and Nimitz aircraft carriers all reported COVID-19 positive cases. Uh, the nuclear-powered flagship of the French Navy, the aircraft carrier, the Charles de Gaulle, also reported crew members who tested positive. 
Through the voyage, the Liaoning showed the Chinese People's Liberation Army has done a great job in the epidemic prevention and control work and COVID-19 epidemic has not had an impact on its deployment and operations, Zhu said. It showed that the PLA can dispatch troops stationed anywhere at any time with the troops always maintaining vigorous combat capabilities. The Chinese <laughs> people can always count on them. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty oh, it's, interesting. It's, it shows refreshing. The, yeah, it is. <clears throat> and it shows the, uh, the deepening crisis of imperialism. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of slander against China. And, you know, we make no mistake. We understand that uh, there's, no, there's no communist government on the planet Earth um, at this time uh, because genuine communism has to emerge as an international phenomenon through the defeat of parasitic capitalism and after the transition stage of international socialism. So while there are communist parties, there's no communism that currently exists uh, on the planet Earth. So we're not mistaken to think that we're talking about a communist country um, per se. Um, also, it's pretty clear that there has been a lot of capitulation by the Chinese uh, government and system to global capitalism. So that's not really what we're talking about. But I think what can be said without any ambiguity is that we're looking at a country whose modern identity uh, and national identity was forged through a communist revolution, was forged through Mao Zedong and the Chinese revolution, and that many of the principles which guide uh, the Chinese government and the Chinese people are so different from what we see in, in uh, the United States under, under the bourgeoisie, of, under parasitic capitalism, that you have basic principles, even democratic centralism that's used in China, even people's war. They have used the term people's war, which came from Mao, to describe the efforts that they are making against COVID-19. Um, and even, um, uh, anyway, yeah, so I think those are really important points and also looking at slander that the United States has been waging against the Chinese government saying that they've engaged in such draconian measures uh, to try to stop the spread of COVID-19, et cetera, et cetera, when what you actually see is a collectivist approach versus an individualist approach like you see in this country. You see a collectivist approach where the people and the government are working together to stop this virus from killing more people than it needs to. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, or more people than have already died, I should say, um, on, you know, in China. So, um, so this military uh, example of the strength of China right now is, I'm sure, very chilling to the United States, which, as Chairman Amalia Chitella said, created COVID-19 um, as a form of biological warfare to weaken China. Because while the, Ch the U.S. economy is being... Um, is being thrown into upheaval by the COVID-19 crisis, there was obviously a decision made that the Chinese economy represented the most existential threat to the US economy, and that anything that could be done to weaken the Chinese economy should be done, uh, and even biological warfare would not be off the table. But obviously, right. that is backfiring. Talk about blowback. It is not <laughs> out. So that's a statement of crisis. What do you think, Jamie? I, I, I think it's a statement of deep crisis. I think it's, it's a revealing statement too, what, what you said at, at the end there of uh, US imperialism having banked everything on this attack against the economy of China and rescuing uh, the, the parasitic economy of the United States at, at the expense of human lives, 
at the expense of saving their own population. You know, I was looking at the numbers the other day, Jesse, I believe we're up to what, 20, is it 23,000 people who yep. have died now? Uh, over 23,000, the, the number's probably changing as we speak. Uh, yeah. Just in the U.S. alone, the, the last count I heard of deaths from COVID-19 in China were around 3,300. Mm -hmm. And that's a nation of a billion people. Right. So it, one of the articles that I read about this same topic, there, the um, commander of, of the vessel, a People's Liberation Army commander, I, I may have his title wrong, was, was talking about the, the, the really poor performance of the U.S. around coronavirus as, as compared to the response of the Chinese government and the, and the Chinese military. And, you know, what, I, I really agree with your reminding us about the political origins of the Chinese government from the revolutionary uh, government of Mao. But I think it's also important to remember before that, that we're talking about a people who suffered colonial domination in the worst ways. Yeah who uh, suffered from the British in particular, the imposition of opium. They tried to force an entire nation to become junkies, to yep. become absolutely powerless before this, this chemical weapon of opium, right? And they did that at gunpoint. They did that with gunboat diplomacy, as it was euphemistically called, I believe by Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. So the full circle historical nature of this to see the, the Teddy Roosevelt stricken with coronavirus <laughs> and unable to maintain U.S. hegemony in the South China, South China Sea and having to sail home and, and, and give way to this uh, Chinese aircraft carrier. Yeah, I agree with you. It, we, we can't be mistaken. This is not the revolution, but this is a deep and profound crisis for U.S. imperialism, and that is the biggest uh, most dangerous, reckless, bloodthirsty imperialism on the planet. So yeah, when it comes to a question of the Chinese people versus the Chinese government, I'm with the Chinese people. But when it comes to a question of the U.S. government, the U.S. imperialism versus an ascendant China, I support China. That's the, 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 that's the stand that it seems we, we must take if we're going to reject parasitic capitalism and stand with the peoples of the earth. No doubt. No, for real. All right, well, we are getting ready to wrap up, uh, Jamie, but I do want to say a little bit about the USM National Convention. The USM Please. National, yes, so this is coming up in a few days, actually. It's going to be this Saturday and Sunday, April 18th and 19th. Anyone who hasn't registered, please do so at afrusolidarity.org slash register. It's called Reparations Uprising. We are launching an, a national campaign to target the money sector, to target Wall Street, the ruling class, the banks, the corporations, the CEOs, even celebrities and politicians that we are calling on to pay reparations to the African Revolution. We have a campaign called Make Wall Street Pay Reparations that's gonna be launched at the convention. Chairman Amalia Shatella is gonna be the keynote speaker. Penny Hess will be one of the keynote speakers. Uh, Deputy Chair Onizaneya Shatella, Tcharo Masimba of the African People's Socialist Party, the Economic Development Director for the Black Power Blueprint, um, Kalambai and Danette, the president of the International People's Democratic Reform Movement, who we had on the show last week, um, and, and or maybe the, two weeks ago, and many others will be uh, speaking at that convention. It's going to be an incredible uh, two-day Zoom conference. You can participate from anywhere in the world. If you have a computer, even if you only have a phone, you can call in and participate. So I really encourage people to sign up, get involved, and join the struggle, join the fight for reparations to African people. This is the time to step up. This is the time. So uhurusolidarity.org slash register, Uhuru. Uhuru, and um, I believe that if, if you wanted to find out information about the program Jesse's talking about, that website again, specifically for the convention, uhurusolidarity.org 
slash convention for right. the, uh, the, the convention details. That's uhurusolidarity.org slash convention. And I just really want to join with Jesse in encouraging people to take a stand in this time to um, find out what it is that, that you can do to be involved with not just explaining the world, but changing the world. The mission statement of Black Power 96.3 WBPU-FM, who we want to thank and salute for allowing us to have this radio program every Tuesday at noon. Jesse, any, any uh, last announcements, final words before we say goodbye for another week? No, thank you so much, Jamie. And thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you to Black Power 96.3. I really want to thank you too, Jesse. I really salute you for, for being here. And uh, I want to thank everyone who's tuned in. I want to join Jesse in uh, thanking the African People's Education and Defense Fund and Black Power 96.3 WBPU in St. Petersburg. This has been Reparations in Action, the official show of white people in solidarity with the African liberation and reparations to African people worldwide. We will see you next week. Uhuru. Uhuru.